Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the In the Tank podcast sub-series, Deep Dive, where we really get in-depth on a specific topic, topic area, and we, uh, we rely on the, the expertise of somebody that's in the field. And uh, if you are familiar with the In the Tank podcast, you know that kind of education is uh, sort of my blind spot when it comes to policies that we cover here at the Heartland Institute. In fact, when we do uh, a, a topic on an education item, I usually go to Lenny Jarrett uh, for advice or for him to elaborate or kind of uh, orientate me on, the, on the, <laughs> the subject at hand. So with me on the first episode of Deep Dive, I have Lenny Jarrett, who is an education policy expert here at the Heartland Institute. How are you good, sir? Oh, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on the first episode. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, this is kind of like the, the first episode of this. So I just wanted to mention that I want this to be less of just a formal interview and more of a conversation. So okay. as much as I will kind of lead the conversation or anything like that, feel free to take it in any direction that you want. <laughs> All right. Again, I'm going to be trying to channel my Joe Rogan here for a little bit. Uh, so I can turn into the teacher and stuff if I want to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. In fact, I could be way off base. Like I said, education is kind of my blind spot. So. I guess the first thing to do would be to, um, I guess, put some context into where you're coming from, get a little bit uh, of your background, I guess. So you've been at the Heartland Institute for three or four years? Four years on uh, just the topic of education primarily. Yep. Primarily, yes. Um, but prior to that, you were also kind of in the realm of education, right? Yes. I kind of got my start looking at education back in actually 2004. Okay. Our school district was having a school referendum, and I didn't know a whole lot about it. My kids were both in school, so I'm like, okay, does the school need the money? What are they doing? How are they spending that money? Because I come from a programming background, mm. so I'm kind of very logical, want all the information so I can see what's going on. So I started looking, started digging, started learned how to do a Freedom of Information Act, okay. and started requesting information from our school district. And I'm like, okay, I'm a tech guy. So I set up a website so I could post everything I got from the school district and everything I found to make it easy for everybody to look at. So, so I would guess that you were probably one of the parents that the school district wasn't too keen about. No, not at first they didn't know what to think. Okay. And within two weeks now of my first freedom of information request, somebody hacked my website and shut it down. Wow. And started posting a lot of personal information about me and my family on a pro referendum uh, forum. Okay. So I'm like, okay, there's something wrong here. Yeah. So I kept digging and kept digging and kept digging and in, have been doing that now for the last 15 years. And over the time, I've, I've trained people on how to do Freedom of Information Act. I've uncovered tons of no-bid contracts, actually probably over 100 no-bid contracts that school districts yeah. and other taxing bodies do. I've actually uncovered felonies by school board members and just kept going. And then I started actually writing for Champion News okay. as well, writing about education issues and other tax policy issues. And that's kind of what ended up leading me here to Heartland was all of my my writing, well, actually through Education Matters was my website that I posted everything on and wrote about everything I found through the years. Mm. After the referendum, I was planning on going away. Okay. And just, I was like, nothing else going on. 
except I ended up having a cyber stalker. <laughs> so for six years, somebody followed me around everywhere I posted. Name of Carl was the alias he used. Okay. Six years later, I finally found out who it really was. I found out what his real name was, and he happened to be the husband of a teacher in our local school. Yeah, you know, I want to get into like the politics and stuff of this because you would almost think, just just kind of hearing it, that like, oh, education, oh, you know, that just like the school down the street, you know, you wouldn't even think that it would have such large political implications. Oh, it does. <laughs> so I, I do want to get into that a little bit. Uh, but but when you kind of started off this journey, was it just kind of like as a concerned citizen, or like more on the kind of the parent basis? Of it was actually kind of a concerned citizen because yeah. I actually had started homeschooling my kids that year when the referendum was coming up. So I was more concerned about where my tax money was going, how it was being spent along those lines. Okay. So it was more of that concerned citizen. And I didn't realize the political implications yeah. and how entrenched people were and the systems were entrenched and how they would attack people that just questioned where their money was going. <laughs> right. So homeschooling. Uh, so how long did you do that? You, how, how many kids do you have? Two kids. Two kids. You homeschooled them both? Homeschooled them both, actually. My oldest daughter went to public school first for through kindergarten through second grade. Then she, we went to, she, they went to a private school. My youngest daughter went to the same private school for one year in kindergarten. Okay. After that, we started homeschooling and homeschooled both of them the rest of the way, all the way through high school. So my youngest daughter was really, ex, ex, actually, very exceptional, especially in reading. We had her tested. In kindergarten now, she was reading at a sixth grade level. Mm -hmm. The teacher actually had her reading to the other kids so she could go do other work during class time. <laughs> nice. And it was like, so we're going to be supplementing anyway, so why not start homeschooling? So we did. And we offered both of our kids a chance if, at high school if they wanted to go back to school. We offered mm -hmm. them to go back. They didn't. Both of them didn't want to. My oldest daughter, in fact, actually had a great line. She's like, no, I've seen the neighborhood kids. <laughs> so, okay. And now the, my oldest has graduated from college with honors, and my youngest is going to graduate this December. So uh, I do want to get into a little bit more homeschooling later, but uh, was it more difficult than you were anticipating, or was it actually, what was your kind of experience with it? It, it was different for both kids. My okay. oldest daughter really hated it at first for about a year and a half. Then she turned into absolutely loving it, and it was actually turned out to be easier. That first year, kind of getting into it, what you have to do, what you don't have to do, kind of getting into a rhythm mm -hmm. was the hardest. After that, homeschooling became a breeze, actually, the rest of the way through, because there's so many, so many resources out there for homeschoolers now. It became very, very easy okay. to do. So education policy, uh, I would assume that if you were to talk to any kind of expert in a particular policy area, they would probably say, oh, you know, this one's the most important. If we get energy right, <laughs> yes. you know, but uh, so why, why education? Well, education really is the most important because if you keep indoctrinating kids year after year, generation after generation into the love of big government, which is really what our public education system does, then you're going to lose on every other issue, no matter what you do, because they've already been trained to believe government is the answer to every problem. Mm -hmm. So education is the under underpinnings of a free society, really. Okay. So I, I kind of want to give a little bit more kind of uh, background on just the education system in America. <laughs> so 
I guess like, you know, because typically if you were to just ask somebody or something like that, just kind of a, give me a generalization of the education system. Like, sure, there's some little carve outs for some private school, charter school type of stuff, a little bit of homeschooling over here. But in general, we've got a public education system. So I guess my question is like, how did we evolve that? How did we get to where we are now? Well, in the 1800s, we, it's local communities actually funded and started their own schools. Mm. So the money stayed completely local. It didn't go to the state governments. It stayed local. They started their own schools. And a lot of them were private schools at the okay. time. In Massachusetts, actually, most people have heard of Horace Mann. And he loved the Prussian model of schooling. Mm. He worked with James Carter at that time. And James Carter used to actually be a private school teacher in one of those local schools. Okay. They kept thinking that all the good students were going to these private schools, so they had to do something about it. So they started mandating what they called then at the time common schools mm. and trying to force the private schools pretty much out of business, making sure every community then went through a common school so that all the kids would be back into the same school system. And they thought that would actually help their common school or then which became the public school mm. system. So you started getting seat time education, which is kind of where we've gone, the Prussian model, sitting in a classroom with the teacher in the front of the classroom right. and doing that. And that's still what we have today. So we're actually educating now in the 21st century from an 18th, 19th century model still is what our education system is. So it kind of pushed the, it pushed the model into state-run schooling rather than local community-run schools, and that kind of leads into, I don't know if anybody's heard of the Blaine Amendments. A lot of people have, some haven't. The, sure. Yeah, the Blaine Amendment, most schools back in the 1800s were, were run by Protestants. Okay. So they weren't per, they, per se religious schools, but they used the Bible and other religious texts in their reading, how they were teaching. Everything was kind of coming from a Protestant point of view. During that time, there was a major influx of immigration Irish Catholics, mm. which in the major cities and stuff really kind of showed up all this anti-Catholic bigotry, which turned into the Blaine Amendments, which is in 38 states. And what that did was it took all of the local school funding, sent it to the state, except for your local, which we'll get to the property tax issue later. Yeah. But the majority of the money then went to the state, and then the state was funding the schools but the state would not allow any money to go for what they call sectarian purposes or you know religious purposes. Right. So it was really built on anti-Catholic bigotry because all the most the majority of the schools were already Protestant and teaching with Protestant texts. Right. So which kind of has backfired on the Protestants over the long run. <laughs> now because of that, because now the schools have become more humanist, more anti-religion, kind of void of any religious anything in them right now and the way, the way it's gone. So, so I'm curious about the funding. Okay, so you, you said that it kind of started off as just kind of communal or whatever, yes. kind of branched out. Uh, what is it today? It's generally state, on the state level funded, correct? Typically it's, it's considered state level funding, but in m many states, the majority of the funding till the school is done through local property taxes, which hmm. doesn't go to the state. Okay. But then the state funding formulas base what they give back to the school districts off of what the local districts provide in, in funding. 
So that's what gives us a very unequal system today mm. because the districts with rich homes, rich land, very high value land are getting more money from their local community, less from the states. The urban areas that don't have as much land value, sure. much prop the property tax base is getting more of their money from the state. So there's, uh, there's very unequal funding right now between the school districts which ends up hurting the low-income students actually the most. Well, I'm curious to hear you say that because when I was looking up kind of what the counterpoints are <laughs> to like the people that are advocating for education choice, that was a, a topic that would come right. up. Uh, but I, I, I actually want to kind of put that on hold for one other minute and kind of go back to kind of what you were talking about is like how the system of education, would you say the Prussian version Prussian model, yes. So one of the criticisms that I've heard uh, was that like basic that we've developed an education system that just like creates good workers. Is that just kind of like one of those conspiracy theory type uh, whatever? Or is there some kind of that's, to it? That's the, ba the, the way the public school system works, or if you somebody wants to call it government school system monopoly works, is they really teach to the middle for the most part. They mm -hmm. try to bring the kids up with the least amount of knowledge, try to bring them up toward the middle. The accelerated kids a lot of times will get left behind or have to find alternative ways to get educated because everything is done toward the middle. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of a teach them to think for themselves just enough that they have to work for somebody else instead of being the entrepreneurs because they are. When you're sitting in school every day being taught by a teacher, you're teaching them obedience. You obey the teacher. You obey, so you're obeying authority. And it does. It's kind of an, a subtle indoctrination over a long period of time of how it works. And I know that uh, there's some kind of uh, solutions to that that are kind of built into the, the education choice things that we'll get into. Yes. But, uh, how does, uh, so we, we kind of talked about that at the state level and stuff like that, but how does the federal government <laughs> kind of get involved? Like when was the Department of Education created, <laughs> stuff like that? Uh, well, I forgot the exact year, but I believe the Department of Education was actually created in 1868, I really? believe is the year. Okay. There was so much outcry over it, it became a just an office underneath the Department commerce okay. because people didn't want a federal department of education back then so it just became an office and it really did more of data collection is what they were doing back then and started into the depression great depression the federal government started doing some mandates where they mandated certain farming classes to be taught across all the schools and then gradually year after year they started doing more and more mandates and then under president jimmy carter in the 70s they elevated the office of of education back to a department cabinet level right. department and that's when it really started to take off and then you had the book it was studied the nation at risk under reagan that highlighted the problems within our education system. And then they really ramped up the federal intervention into education, which has gotten even worse every year. It keeps getting worse and worse. Now every, de actually every Department of Education in the state has to get their improvement plans approved by the Federal Department of Education before they're implementing. And that's how the flow of money keeps coming back and forth with the feds. You, you're getting permission from the federal government on how you're going to educate your kids in your state. Well, so kind of going back to like the first kind of years that I was here, one of the big things that we would talk about a lot was the idea of Common Core. Yeah. 
so does that is that like a relic of the past? Is that still in play? That was a that was a thing of the the federal government, right? Yeah, basically the federal it was a bunch of education reform people thought, oh, we should need a common set of standards, yeah. which has actually gone back all the way back into the Reagan years after the Nation at Risk, people started talking about it. We needed common standards. So kids that move ac across state line, they all get educated the same way. And that kind of progressed up until the point of Common Core becoming this standard. And they got, when the Obama administration went in, they used the race to the top at that time to bribe states to adopt Common Core without ever really seeing Common Core or how it was going to work. So that came into effect, and if kind of the, the English language part of it really kind of got implemented in 2010, and it was a couple more years before all the math got fully implemented across most of the states. There were still four states, I believe, that never accepted all of Common Core. And as we've seen now, Common Core, the test scores are starting to drop. And Common Core is still there. There's many states that will say, oh, we dropped Common Core and have our own state standards. They're lying to you. All they did was tweak the Common Core standards and put them under a new name. It's still Common Core. So it just kind of almost seems like if you were to just look, and I know that we've had kind of some short term in the grand <laughs> scheme of things, victories in terms of kind of breaking down this monopoly. Yes. But it seems like if you were to look at a really broad picture, you see just more and more state intervention, state meaning government. Right. And then increasing federal kind of intrusion into Yes. It. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Over and over. And it, the feds think they know best. And that's why you get the whole of the discussions right now. A lot of people don't like Betsy DeVos because she was never a teacher. Sure. And all the candidates that are running for the Democratic nominee are progress saying, we're going to have a teacher run the Department of Education. But it really, we should get to be getting the feds out of the profession altogether, put them back to just a record keeping kind of data collection so you can see where the states are and put the control back to the states. Actually, that's why I advocate more education choice because the parents are the ones that sure. really need to be in charge, not even the state departments of education. Well, I think the, the one thing, and I, I, I'm glad you kind of referenced it because I, I could have just breezed right past <laughs> it. Like I said, it's not my, <laughs> not my topic of choice here, but just like the outcomes, right? So, you know, we, we kind of talk about this, uh, we're kind of talking about it from our own bias when it's like the, the amount of government intrusion and stuff like that. But I think like what the average person would care about is what are the outcomes. So we've created a system where we have a public school system across the, the, the country. So what, I guess, is the problem when it comes to the, the outcomes? Yeah, the problem is as, as Common Core got, in, got it put in place, the test scores had basically plateaued. Mm. If people want to look, it's the nation's assessment uh, for educational progress, otherwise known as NAEP or the nation's report card. It's easy to go look up. And you can see since Common Core came in in 2010, how the test scores have started to decline in a lot of states. If you go into specific states and look at them, if there's an interesting thing happening, Arizona is now one of the fastest growing segments of, of education okay. in their charter schools and stuff because of school choice. Sure. They have a lot of school choice in Arizona, mm -hmm. open enrollment, charter schools, and ESAs, or education savings accounts for those that don't know what ESA is. Sure. And so they're the fastest growing sector. They've got some of the top ranked schools in the entire nation now because of they have the competition and the choice. So you really got to dig into the numbers, but the NAEP or the nation's report card is one thing. Most people kind of look at it as an overall grade 
and we're dropping. We're test scores are lowing. Internationally, we've been kind of going down on our test scores as well as compared to other nations. Other nations have surpassed us. We haven't dropped as much by score there in the international test scores, but the other nations have been able to surpass us. We're ranked now in like the 30s of all the OECD nations right now. It's it's ridiculous where we're heading. So our system is not improving. It's staying basically very stagnant or even lower in some cases, except in the states with major school choice. So I know that you're, you're trying to push us towards that. <laughs> yes. uh, and we will get to that, I promise. <laughs> um, but I think that the, the, the critics of your point of view would say that uh, you know we could have increasing test scores or just outcomes and stuff like that, academic outcomes, if we just had the proper amount of funding. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, is there any ground for them to stand on on that regard? Or what's your response? You no. Every study that's looked at the money inputs, some states have had negligible increases. Mm. Some states, it makes absolutely no difference. You've got states now, on average, I think we spend about just under $10,000 per student across the country. But if you go look at the states, Rhode Island spends over $16,000 a student. Wyoming spends over $17,000 per student. Washington, D.C. spends over $30,000 a student. Go look at their test scores. They're some of the worst ones around. So the money does not equate to better educational outcomes or test scores in these matters. Right. So then how about uh, kind of going back to the one thing that you had mentioned about like how the, the schools are funded, right? So, you know, I was born and raised in the uh, suburbs right here in Chicago, not very far from where we're recording right now. And the school's, you know, fine. I, it's easy for me to say that because I don't have anything to compare it to. I don't know. But then when you kind of hear about like the failing schools in some of the major cities and stuff like that, and this was because of the way that they're funded, right? Through the-, the Yeah, there's, une tax. there's unequal funding. So the suburbs typically get are, are better funded than the urban schools, which kind of, which kind of bends, bends to the argument about, like, oh, we just need more funding. Yeah. But we keep dumping more and more money into the urban, urban schools anyway, and it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Chicago public schools, for instance, they're, they are probably one of the highest, I'd say they're the number one or number two, I forgot which right now, because I haven't looked the last couple of years. Highest paid teachers in the entire country. Mm -hmm. they, they have so many teachers making $90,000 and above, and yet they have some of the worst test scores anywhere in Illinois. Yeah, you know, and again, I don't want to kind of input my own bias here or anything like that, um, but you can kind of tell me if this is true or not, but I'm kind of wondering kind of where the money goes when it comes to, you're talking about spending per pupil and stuff like that. And I had read a criticism of kind of like the, the current state of our public school system where it says that like we have more uh, teachers or therapists or just kind of a uh, administrative people like per student than ever before. Yeah, there's, there's an, been an administrative bloat. Okay. Administrators, as uh, a Cato study that actually talks about this, how administrators since, I forgot the year they started, I believe they started, they, they went back to like 1972 and administrators have increased by over 750% mm. where the student population has basically just doubled. Okay. So the money isn't getting into the classroom to start with. Typically in Illinois, it depends on the school district, but you're probably 50 to 53, 54% of the money actually makes it into the classroom. The rest is going to the overhead and the administration and everything else. It's not actually getting into the classroom. And I would say if it's getting into the classroom, it's not really 
doing that well either. So, sure. so I think one of the things that uh, I was I was thinking you were going to say it right then and there, uh, <laughs> but we should just dive headlong into it, and that is the topic of teachers' unions. <laughs> yeah. So similar to the just the, the the topic in general, I kind of want to set up kind of what the origin are so it's just kind of this a naturally occurring thing just kind of the workers getting together and kind of flexing their their union power or how, how did we get to the situation we're at now well i think after the private union started and then some of the private schools and some of the well really really some of the rural public schools they really did have some bad conditions to start with and sure. how they, the di rules they dictated on teachers. And so that's kind of how some of the, you know, some of that, there needed to be some change okay. in that, but the teachers unions ended up becoming, taking, becoming more militant basically mm -hmm. and getting more into political agendas. In fact, the NEA, I looked at their handbook from, I believe it was 2014. I haven't looked at the most recent. If you go through their handbook, they talk about their well, talk about their themselves and their administration, how they operate. So you get some of that, but then they go into a bunch of social justice issues. They don't actually start talking about English English language standards until almost page two hundred of their handbook. They don't talk about math until after page three hundred. Okay. So their focus is not on education. <laughs> Instead, which you would think that's what the teachers' union should be all about. And the teachers unions wield a ton of political power. So a lot of the mandates that people don't like, but a mandate, the you'll see the teachers union complain about all the mandates they have in these public schools, and they blame the rise in administrators on the number of mandates. Well, in a lot of those cases, the teachers unions were the ones pushing those mandates that they now complain about because they knew it meant more teaching jobs, more money, and more dues coming to them right. so it's it's kind of a vicious circle and they kind of play that game like oh it's not us when it really was them all the way along all the time well i mean we're we're in a state like illinois yes and i know that there's a kind of an interesting dynamic between some of the leadership when it comes to the state governments oh, yeah. and its connections to the teachers union so i guess question a is kind of how how has that actually been working in the state and and b like how is the teachers union becoming such like a powerful force i guess in the state itself well they've become such a political force because of the money they in teacher in illinois it's about a thousand dollars per year for each teacher that goes to the union okay. then they wield that money mm for helping getting candidates elected and putting in governors and influencing all of that through the time. So they're, they're, they're controlling the political process greatly. Okay. Something that pe most people may not know about Illinois is Illinois teachers did not have the right to completely collectively bargain or being the sole collective bargaining unit up until the 1980s. Mm. When the air traffic controller strike happened after Ronald Reagan, okay. Jim Thompson, the governor of Illinois at that point, actually made it that teachers could then collectively bargain and had the right to strike, which started the downward spiral of everything that's been happening in Illinois and strengthened the teacher union power started back in the 1980s under Governor Jim Thompson. So like in Illinois, though, when it comes to just kind of state spending and, and, and uh, tax revenue and stuff like that, the amount that goes to education is a pretty substantial chunk. Yes. 
Yeah, uh, well, about it's about 25% now goes to teacher and, and to the pension system, which the biggest chunk of that is teacher pensions. Right. But the two biggest expenditures of the state are education, K-12 education and Medicaid. Okay. Those are the two biggest drivers. Right. And, and as the population continues to increase with the student population, it's going to continue to continue to go up. One thing about Illinois, we're losing population now. Chicago itself has lost over 100,000 students in the last couple of decades, but the money still increases. They keep getting more and more money, regardless of the number of students that are decreasing and the outflow migration out of Illinois. But they have wielded so much power right now, they completely control the political process. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if we need to invoke the name of Michael Madigan uh, <laughs> or the, the connections that he's got. But yeah, it just kind of seems like the the amount of influence that they have over the political system, it kind of bring it back to the one of the first statements that you made when we were talking about just kind of the, uh, the, 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 the noise you were making and the unwanted attention that you are getting. Yeah. Well, most people don't realize, they think their local school board yeah. is because it's local elected, they have local control. Yeah, yeah. What they don't realize is how much money the teachers unions put into those school board races to make sure those people on the school boards are beholden to the teachers union in that local district. Yeah. In fact, uh, I, forgot, I forgot who did the study but somebody looked at the teachers union money. Everybody, you know, you hear these complaints all the time about how much money the Koch brothers are putting into elections. Mm. Well, it turns out the teachers unions across the entire country are putting in over a half a billion dollars into elections, local, state, and federal. They're actually putting in more money than anybody else wow. as a single entity. And that's why they control so much and have so much political power is just purely their money flowing into it, which I know is what Janice, the Janice decision is kind of helping, gonna, I think will start helping turn that tide. And we've seen that before with Act 10 in Wisconsin a few years ago. Well, yeah, let's get into Janice a little bit since we're on the, the topic of teachers unions. So uh, let's, let's kind of lay out the pre-Janice kind of ruling. So what was the situation for people that were entering the public school system as a teacher or stuff like that when it relates to being in a union? Well, any public sector union. Mark Janice was actually from Illinois, so it's an Illinois case that right. did this. But it's a public sector union. So if you're in the public sector union and they're the sole collective bargaining unit, when you join, get a, get a job, you are mandatory. You have to pay union dues. You can do that as an objector and not pay supposedly the political portion of it, okay. which was all typically a very small amount. Uh, you, yeah, I'm sure that's some really precise Well, yeah, there. they always <laughs> said it was, yeah, well, they claim, most people claim it's, it's $35, and we know it was a lot more, and those court rulings have proved it was a lot more. Interesting. But then Mark Janis did not want his dues, which was typically then still about 750 to $800 a year going into the public sector union because he knew the union leadership was very political, very heavily invested yeah. in basically against his will, against the parties he wanted, against the people and elected officials he wanted. So he challenged, the, challenged it, that ruling that he didn't have to pay any money into the unions because he knew everything he put in wasn't just going to collect the bargaining, it was going for political purposes. Right. And that's basically what the Janus ruling was in 2018, was that all union money is political because they're by nature political, 
and therefore you can opt out and you not do not have to mandatorily pay any dues anymore. So. Yeah, so it, so it, went, it fought its way up the court. Yes. It got all the way up to the Supreme Court. They ruled. And that, were you surprised by that ruling? No. I was, I was surprised at how far the ruling went. I wasn't surprised by the ruling. I thought the ruling would be more limited than it was, but it, it pretty much went that you had to opt in. I expected it to be more of, okay, you have to opt out. Okay. So by opting in, the unions now have to get a person to say, yes, I want to pay dues now instead of going, no, I don't want to pay dues. So, so it's a much better ruling than what I expected. So as this kind of continues and more people are kind of getting into the field and stuff like that, and they have to now opt in and not necessarily be in it and opt out, right. is this going to start to erode the power of the teachers' unions and kind of the big... It should erode their political power, yeah. and it should force them to be more consumer-friendly as okay. far as okay, their customers are the teachers or public mm -hmm. sector workers. So it should force them to actually start serving the needs of their customers better. So they may become more concierge services. They may provide services that the teachers want or other public sector workers actually want and get less political. And that's which is a political arm, basically. Right, exactly, and that, which is what they are now. They're just a militant political arm for the most part in most, especially in most urban areas, that's kind of what they are. Okay. So hopefully that's where they become, and we'll see. I mean, I know the NEA budget this year has budgeted for a 6% loss. I think the loss is gradually going to accelerate over time. I think they're really they're doing a good job of advertising what they do, the service they, they provide and stuff right now. And it's still highly politic in the politically charged world we get. It, it's easy for them. But I think it's going to gradually really decrease their political power and make them focus on what they have to actually, the people they have to serve, which so, is really the way it should be. So if that's the case, then what is the implications when it comes to uh, more states embracing different school choice options? Hopefully over time, good. Okay. <laughs> we'll see, this, 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 this session of states, we had six increases in school choice mm -hmm. across the different states. Actually, West Virginia, for the first time, opened up charter schools which they hadn't done before. So that was, they're like the 43rd state now that has charter schools. Okay. And charter schools have been around for 30 years and they're finally having charter schools. Well, you, you, you've been <laughs> patient enough, so let's get into education <laughs> choice. Um, so, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it just seems what you're saying to me is kind of, we had the, the growth of the public school system. It became just kind of like the standard across the country. And then we started having, and I, I assume that there was a level of homeschooling here and there. Actually, not till about 30, 40 years ago. Homeschooling actually was not very really? prevalent. They had kind of eliminated homeschooling. A lot of states actually banned homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And that kind of movement started back in the 70s and 80s to kind of really, really opened it up. Illinois is actually one of the best homeschooling states. Yes. Other states are hard. Iowa's now um, changed their homeschooling laws. They're much more friendly now. And there's other states that are very friendly. There's some that are still very hostile okay. to homeschoolers. But that real homeschooling per se now has really grown tremendously. But it started in the 70s and 80s. Okay. Parents I, were getting arrested in the 70s and 80s for homeschooling. I figured homeschooling had its roots back in like the 1700s. Well, they <laughs> did. A lot of people were homeschooled back right. then. I mean, but not anymore. I mean, Thomas Edison was homeschooled. So there's a lot of people that were homeschooled, but it wasn't 
it wasn't common and states started banning it for a long, it was a period where they were banning it altogether. So kind of like what, what, what were more of the origins of a kind of school choice or education choice? Like what were the first kind of chips in the, uh, you know, the monolith? Well, it, by, it's kind of ironic. A professor from California that was actually very on the progressive side mm. was one of the first plans that got implemented under Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, actually, to start some education choice programs in California. I and it never got, have guessed that. And it got killed in about three years in okay. because the teachers' unions mm. actually helped kill it. But it actually has very progressive roots. I mean, you can go back further than that. And after slavery, after the Civil War, there was a movement to try to kind of separate the freedom schools with okay. Frederick Douglass and stuff. That was kind of the beginning of kind of a school choice, trying to get kids educated because African-American kids were not allowed in the public schools. So they had to have, so they were starting their own schools and doing that. So it's kind of an interesting history yeah. and mix of everything. But yeah, some of the first, the charter school law in um, Milwaukee, Okay. was done by a liberal state representative as well. So there's a lot of progressive roots and liberal roots that kind of started school choice I had no and idea. how it's expanded and stuff. Now, I mean, Milton Friedman's kind of one of the touted as most of the one, you know, talked about school choice frequently a lot and stuff like that and kind of more on the conservative side. But a lot of the actual the programs mm -hmm. actually started from a progressive point of view. That is very interesting. I, I never would have guessed that, you know, and that should probably be something that's more common knowledge. It should be. Because as my uh, producer extraordinaire said earlier in the day, like he would think that school choice should be like a bipartisan issue. It should be. It absolutely should be. Because the people that school choice affects the most are the low income yeah. and particularly urban schools and rural schools because they have the least opportunities to be able to have other options and where actually i like to call education choice more than school choice now because we've become with technology the ability that you don't have to pick another school anymore you can pick a mix of schools or sure. online schools right. and self-learning there's so much more to education now than just picking another school so I think you mentioned was Milwaukee. Was that the first kind of school choice program of like I guess we could call it like the modern era? It was the first school choice program. Actually, Minnesota started the first charter program, okay. and then Minnesota and then Milwaukee was the first actual school choice program with a school voucher. Okay, well explain charter schools to me. Charter schools are actually public schools. Okay. And so they actually have a charter with the local school district or with the state, depending on how they're established and the state laws work. So they're actually kind of, they have lotteries because most of the time if they, when they start in a school district, every kid in that school district can opt in, apply for that school and they have to accept everybody that comes. But when they don't have enough seats, then they go to a lottery format and randomly pick the students that will be able to attend. Mm. So that's kind of, but they are public schools funded with government state money so the money that's going to a school district will then flow into the charter school from either through the school district or through the state and again the federal government is now sending money directly into the charter schools and stuff too which is another federal intervention into local schools sure. so, <laughs> so i mean like how, how does the, the 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 charter schools kind of work in tandem i guess with public schools 
It depends on the district. <laughs> yeah, because I know that there's kind of a lot, like a really broad definition of what constitutes a charter school. Yeah, it's it. Some public school districts are very friendly with their charter schools and really work well with them. Mm. Some of them are very antagonistic and don't want to work with them. So there's examples. Chicago has the majority of, of charter schools in the state of Illinois. I believe there's only 10 or 11 charter schools outside of the city. Where inside the city there's like 110. Mm -hmm. So it's it, it really depends on the district and how they work. I mean, I, I can give you an example up in Lake County where the school district didn't want the charter school. They appealed to the state board and then the charter was granted. So they work as an independent learning center. So they're run by the state. They're chartered right. with the state, not with the local school district. But the money still flows. The property tax money then flows from local districts in and then the state money comes in. That's a very antagonistic relationship right there. So just, just to kind of like put it uh, kind of on a spectrum in my simpleton mind when it comes to education stuff, if you were to have like, you know, the, the public school system being like, a, you know, a one on the scale and then like pure whatever you're, you know, we'll get to some other different <laughs> education choices as being like a 10, where on that spectrum does uh, this charter school solution, I guess, fit? I think it depends on the state and okay. the, the law and how they can be created. Some states, I would say they're only at a two. Okay. And some states, I'd probably actually say charters are probably a four, almost maybe even a five, depending on, depending on the state and the, and the regulations they have to deal with. Okay. All right. So, yeah, because when I hear people, you know, especially with the, the campaigns, the presidential campaigns and stuff like that <laughs> ramping up, and they'll, they like to kind of lay into the, the charter schools. Yeah, if you listen to politicians, every charter school is a private school trying to take right. money away from the public schools when charter schools are all public schools and publicly funded. Right, and I hear that and I'm like, you know, I've talked to Lenny enough to know that that's not <laughs> yes. necessarily the case. Yeah, the majority of states actually, their charter school laws that all every private, every charter school has to be a not-for-profit. Mm. There are some states that private charter schools okay. but there's i believe the mix is 85 percent is not for profit and there are 15 percent for profit and one of the schools national heritage academy that i know of is a private charter network they tip they will typically only go into urban areas where there are really failing schools and work okay and their results are fantastic mm. what they're doing so it's it's really fun to see what a private charter can do and a public charter can do. They all okay. can do great things if they're allowed to. And you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess the next kind of level up when it comes to education choice would be vouchers? Yes. Okay, so explain vouchers. Yes, to me. some people have vouchers a little higher. That's where I have them next is after charter schools. Okay. Because a voucher is you're picking another school. Mm. You're getting a certificate that says, I want to go to this school. This is the tuition's going to cost. I don't have to pay any more. I don't have to pay any less. That's what it's going to be. So it's kind of an artificial market but it gives the child a way to go to a different school. And so it's, it's a set set of funding coming from the government directly to another school. Okay. So I, now, I guess let's back up one step here. So in terms of school choice kind of across the country, there isn't a ton of programs, correct? Actually, there is a little over 60 education choice programs, I'm not counting charters, hmm. in 27 states. 27 states, so just over half. Just over half the states have some type of school choice, education choice program. So how prevalent, I guess, is the, is the voucher system? Is there any like widespread statewide type of voucher 
program? Or Actually, is Milwaukee is, is, is a pretty decent, big size voucher system. The okay. largest voucher system is in Indiana. Okay. They have the largest number of students that actually accept and work with vouchers, the largest number of schools that work with mm. a voucher program. Florida actually just started a voucher program this year. They've got pretty much every education choice program okay. down there. But the largest voucher program is Indiana. The oldest voucher program is Milwaukee. Okay, so then that allows the, the children to not be kind of tied to whatever school is just next to them, you know, a couple of streets down or something like that. They could theoretically they could take that voucher. To another school and start attending school there. And I was in up in Milwaukee talking to some students up there, some voucher students up there. And I remember this one girl I was talking to, she was getting ready to graduate, but she flat out talked about how, how a voucher changed her life. Mm. She had to take three buses, every single morning to get to school on time but she knew that was the best thing for her life because she had she said when we were talking to her that she knew if she did not come to that school she would either be dead or in jail if she had stayed in her public school wow yeah i mean i guess it's it's you can't overlook the fact that uh you know kids from the age of like five to eighteen spend the majority of their waking life in one of these schools. Yeah, well, it's compulsory. That's right. another whole arg talk, talking argument about whether education should be compulsory and at what age and everything as well, too. All right, so let's stick so, with my little... Yes, we'll skip that one. No, no, let's skip to my... Uh, my <laughs> keep with my scale of 1 to 10. Where, where does the... Uh, uh, where, you know, where does the voucher system? You, you said, like, the charters was a 2 to 4. Yeah, On a I scale of freedom. Yeah, I would put vouchers at probably about a five, consistently at a five. Okay. All right. And I guess that would kind of vary based on the state. Very based on the state, yes. Okay. So then the next level up, let's get to ESAs. Because to me, and again, kind of coming out as, as just like a layman when it comes to these things, ESAs or education savings accounts, right. that seems to be kind of an upper tier. So explain, I guess, what an ESA Well, there's a difference here. Are we getting to when you, when you get tax credit scholarships and ESAs kind of all work together? Okay. So a tax credit scholarship or TCS. There's, they're kind of so intertwined, you have to kind of look at these kind of together. A tax credit okay. scholarships are a little bit more limited than an ESA, but the ultimate is kind of, so if you get a tax credit scholarship, I would say is really, really pretty free. I would put them at like a, a seven. ESA is right at an eight. Okay. But there is a new concept that people are talking about is a tax credit scholarship funding an ESA, okay. which would be the complete ultimate in freedom hmm. on how it works. So, <laughs> so an ESA though, like basically, an ESA gives you the most individual freedom for a student. Yes, right. So the funds follow the student, similar, I guess, to how with a voucher, but well, it just opens it, up the options of what you could spend that money. Yes, on. you don't have to spend it on another school. You can spend it on. You can go to a, your public school and pay for a class. You can go to a charter school and pay for a class. You can do an online school for a class. So it's it's basically class choice. Hmm. So you can pick the class is that whatever option you want, you can do online schooling, you can save the money for future use, okay. you can even do medical therapies with it, you can use it to, for, for not only tuition, you can now use it for books, you can use it for transportation private in some tutor. states, private tutors. So you have a wide range of flexibility that you could never have with a voucher or completely with a tax credit scholarship because a tax credit scholarship is gonna tend to put you picking a school, mm -hmm. a specific school too. Right. So there was a state. Uh, what state was it that passed like a full-on ESA? 
Well, there's Nevada passed a full-on ESA, but they didn't fund it properly, so it got ruled unconstitutional, okay. so it never got implemented. Mm. Arizona is the closest to having a universal ESA. They okay. passed it last year, but then they went to referendum, and misinformation and bad wording on it kind of killed that. So they're back at, they have their ESA, it's working great, they just need to expand it some more because it doesn't cover every child that they need it to cover yet, and they want to make it more universal, which is the ultimate, is universal education savings account would be the ideal way to go anyway. So again, I, I, I'm catching myself, luckily, <laughs> because I, I think we're, again, we're kind of looking at this whole problem through the kind of the bias of thinking the government is being an intruder to all of this stuff, when we should actually be looking at what the outcomes are. So I would assume that with these different uh, education choice options come with better outcomes? Yes. So far, the educate the outcomes in every almost every case. There are some been some few negative results, but I believe the studies at least it's a minimum of seventy one percent of all school choice programs show mm. an increase in educational outcomes. Okay. I believe it's, that's the last number. I mean, that's if you look at every single study out there. So is there one that, uh, I guess, if you're looking at the freedom scale or something like that, or maybe just based on the outcomes, I'm not sure, is there one that I guess you are more inclined to support or maybe uh, encourage states to look into? Well, Arizona has the best, more, most expansive education savings program out there. They should be the model for education savings accounts right now. If you're looking for tax credit scholarships, that actually would be Florida. Florida has the best tax credit scholarship programs. In fact, they topped 100,000 students this past year using tax credit scholarships. Okay. So there's different models for how you're doing it. And then you have the states that put Milwaukee's, Wisconsin's example with Milwaukee. They're very restricted on their voucher program, which has hindered it from growing as fast as it could. The, one of the negative studies that has come out was Louisiana did the same thing. Their program that they put in place actually did not open up enough schools because they put too many regulations on the schools that wanted to participate. So they didn't get the best schools participating and taking kids. So that's been kind of one of the negatives. If you look at, you had to look at the regulations as well as the availability for students. Okay. So let's uh, let's let's we're, we're starting to run out of time here. So let's get into. Oh, we a, could go for hours. I, but. <laughs> I know, I know. Self-imposed limit here. Um, so I guess let's end with a little bit of bright spots. So obviously we went over Janus and stuff like that. Um, you had mentioned that there were school choice options. There were sixty plus. Yes, sixty plus. Yes, across twenty-seven states. Yep. But if you were to look at that on a chart. It seems like it's an increasing pace. Is that correct? Or is that slowed down? What, what's kind of the latest on that? It actually had been increasing, and it seems like it's kind of slowing down a little bit right now there because of the political battle has become so high-pitched now. Pretty much nothing's going to pass during an election year. It's going to be very, very difficult, so sure. that makes it really hard. So this year, six new programs this year or expansions were really good that was very a very very good year okay but it has it's it's tending to slow down because of the political battles right now interesting so in your ideal world let's say that you are <laughs> you get to control the education policy across the united states kind of how would you uh tailor it very simple universal education choice every kid that when you're getting money goes into a savings account for that child 
the parent then directs that child to whatever school or whatever education opportunity they want. So pretty much we're gonna, we go from, instead of talking about public schools, we're talking about publicly funded education. Mm -hmm. So the public is gonna fund the education of that child, but the money is going to follow that child to whatever education opportunity they want, and we will stop funding school districts mm -hmm but funding the children. So fund, fund children, not districts. Okay. It's the simple way of saying it. Obviously kind of putting control back into the parents' hands. Yes, ultimately the parents can have what have complete control over the money, how it's directed, how it's done. And you'd have protection for fraud. I know that always comes up too. Hmm. There'd be, how do you deal with the fraud case? And Arizona's worked that out and figured that out already. So they've got the model for how that works. So then under this system, we have uh, kind of the competition again in this. Yes, you would. And everybody talks about it's you would re reduce democracy by having not having local control. Oh, sure. But parental, parental control is the ultimate in a democratic system. Yeah, and voting with your dollars. Yes, exactly. Is. Every parent votes exactly the way they want for their child. So under your system, you've got con uh, control by the, the parents, uh, I guess a more access to more options. Yes. And eventually uh, better outcomes. Yes. If we, if we were to embrace all of these things. Yep. Yes. I mean, and well, and then some parents, uh, if you I'll give you Washington, D.C., for example, the parents there are so worried about their kids' safety. They actually choose schools sometimes not because it's better outcomes. The outcomes may be exactly the same, but they choose a different school because they know their child is going to come home to them at night. Yeah, I mean, that, I guess that would be uh, a bad for us not to, to have this conversation and not bring up child safety. Accounts. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, feel free to give us your spiel yeah. on that. Child safety counts as an idea that Har the Heartland Institute came up with back in 2018. Right after the Stoneman Douglas shooting, we were thinking about that and we started looking at some of the bullying numbers in schools and some of the violence in schools. And we come to find out that 80% of schools, or it's a 79 point something, it's almost 80% of schools, have some type of violent episode or bullying happening in their school every single year. 160,000 kids actually skip school every single day to make sure they're not a victim of violence or bullying. So we created this idea for child safety accounts, which is an education savings account mm. for students that are victims of bullying or violence, that they can actually escape those, escape those unsafe schools and unsafe situations to go to another school. I heard a story about a, a girl in Colorado had to sit in the same class with her rapist mm. for two years before he was finally convicted and sent to prison. And she had no choice but to be in the same classroom with classroom with him. That should not happen. Right. That should not be allowed. And that's something child safety accounts fixes. Actually, it's been kind of interesting. There's been a couple of studies now about how child safety accounts, well, not child safety, but ch safety, student safety, school choice, actually decreases teen pregnancy, and it reduces crime. Hmm. So, some other unintended, unintended consequences, or actually they really are kind of, outcrops there are good consequences sure. that if you really thought about it were very predictable in how they would work so this idea of child safety accounts it's actually catching on there's a couple of states that are either considering it there were actually it was introduced in um, nine states this year and in wow. washington and in the federal government congress for washington dc schools so all of that within one year so it's starting to 
people are talking about it because parents are talking about it. Parents actually, I believe it's now a little over 50% of parents choose another school even in the states that have school choice programs based on safety. Okay. Yeah, I know, like I said before, you know, ages five through 18, you're in this school for the <laughs> yeah. most of your waking life. So yeah, this, this definitely is a, a very important topic. Yes, it is. Lenny, I will give you the final word when it comes to this policy <laughs> and education and stuff like that. Maybe anything that we missed or any type of talking points or just kind of the message that you want to put out there before we wrap up this episode. Yeah, I think it's the big thing when you're talking to legislators or you're talking to parents. Parents know best. We should be trusting our parents. Parents know what's good for their, they know how their child should be educated. And we really have to get to talking to your legislators about funding to children and not funding districts. We don't need to fund buildings and administrators. We need to fund the children. All right. Fantastic. Lenny Jarrett, education policy expert here at the Heartland Institute. Thank you for tuning in for this first episode of the In the Tank podcast sub-series Deep Dive. Tune in every Friday for a new episode of the In the Tank podcast. If you like our show, please subscribe, write a review for us on iTunes. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher. You can find us on YouTube, in fact, now. Uh, pretty much everything nowadays. If you want, you can follow us on Twitter at In the Tank Pod. If you want to send us your comments, questions, or suggestions, anecdotes, jokes, feel free to email us at inthetankpodcast at gmail.com. Lenny, where can the fine people find you? It's easy. If you need to email me, education at heartland.org. And I'm also on Twitter. You can find me really under school reform or under Lenny Jarrett on Twitter and Facebook both. Perfect. Fantastic. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>